This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to This Week. From Canberra on Ngunnawal Country, I'm Melissa Clark. The way Australia welcomes migrants into the country is going to get a major overhaul, with the federal government declaring the existing system is unfair, unnecessarily complex and difficult to navigate. It is broken, it is failing our businesses, it is failing migrants themselves, and most important of all, it is failing Australians. And that cannot continue because we as a country face some big national challenges that migration can help us resolve. The failings of the migration system are all too familiar to those who've had experience with it. I know a lot of people who are still migrants, but they're driving taxis. So are you using the best, you're utilising those skills in the best space? No, there you're not. You cannot invite an engineer to your country and then make him drive a taxi. It's unfair with him. So what's the plan to fix the system and will it work? Well, I think what's happened is that we've had a system that's just sort of evolved in quite an ad hoc way over time. And we've layered in all these new visas as, you know, circumstances have changed and we've wanted more workers in a particular sector. And so now we've got over 100 visa subclasses. And we've also had a temporary migration system that's grown really quickly. We've gone from being, you know, a settler nation as sort of uh, ministers during the Howard government referred to it, to having 1.8 million people on temporary visas. Jared Ball is the chief economist for CEDA, the Committee for Economic Development of Australia. Migration is really important and we saw during COVID just what happens when that's taken away. We saw in areas like hospitality, when you don't have a pool of international students, for example, to jump into those sectors, just how difficult that becomes. And then I guess at the other end, we saw in the really high skilled areas, and we're continuing to see that, um, whether that's in, you know, software, health, areas like that, where you just can't get the specialised expertise that you need. The other thing I think that's really important is that migration is something that offsets our ageing population. And so we do have this challenge, which is going to be ongoing, around having a sufficient working age population. So more than 80% of migrants are of working age, whereas for the domestic population, that's about 65%. So this is really important in terms of offsetting that a little bit and making sure that we've got the skills available in the economy that we need. Can that remain with the focus on temporary migration or do we need to shift back to um, creating better avenues for permanent migration? Yeah, so I think we need to find a better a better balance. Clearly, we can't have a capped permanent system running up against this uncapped temporary system. You, you simply can't promise lots of people permanent pathways if they're, if they're not going to be there. And you know, the review points out that we've got 90,000 people on temporary visas who've been on those visas for five or more years. So we don't want people being in limbo. We want to use temporary visas, I think, for a genuine purpose where they are temporary, but also give people that opportunity if they do come in on a temporary visa and, and it works out quite well, that they can shift to permanent over time and that there's a predictable path for that. 
The government is looking at ways to address some of these thorny issues, but one thing that's changing straight away is increasing the minimum salary employers have to pay skilled migrants they bring into the country. But there's still the issue of getting the balance right between bringing in skilled workers and encouraging businesses to upskill Australians to do the jobs. I do think we have an issue, particularly as we look at having 3.5% unemployment in this country, where business does need to look at how it develops the, the sort of pool of human capital in the economy. And so business does need to look at whether it is taking someone who is ready for the job now as opposed to needing some additional skilling up or, you know, needing some experience to get to that point. And I think we are at a point where we need to be um, a little bit less picky and choosy about how we bring people into the workforce. And I think this has been an issue for for quite a long time. The other part of this, and it's a really important uh, focus in the review and also the government's response, is the tripartite kind of approach that we need, uh, that we do need business, government and, and unions talking about the skills needs in the economy and looking at the different levers that we pull. And I think for too long, the conversation has been very much an either-or, talking about skilled migration or domestic training, and we actually need to make sure that we've got both of those systems working really well together. And the thing that will also help with that is the fact that we now have this independent agency, Jobs and Skills Australia, which is going to give us a really frank, unvarnished assessment of skill shortages in the economy. So people have said often that the the notion of skill shortages is a bit of a furphy and that often it is business making special pleading and wanting cheap labour out of out of the migration system. Uh, what we've got now is we've got an independent agency who puts the analysis out there that looks at whether things are genuine skill shortages and the nature of them and also where you know, it might actually be that business is not happy with the quality of domestic workforce in an area. And so we can look at then how we upskill in a particular area. The issue of migration often becomes a political football. There are those who are pushing for a big Australia, saying it's necessary to drive the economy in Australia. And we also have concerns about what a big Australia might mean for local employment opportunities or for infrastructure and housing in Australia. How does the federal government juggle those competing concerns? Well, I think it's hard for them to juggle it based on the current system that we have, which is exactly why you know, we've had this review and obviously we need to see the sorts of changes that the that the review is putting forward. On the labour market side, you know, we've looked at this in our research and there's no evidence overall that migrants have, have detracted from the workforce opportunities and conditions that the domestic workforce has experienced in, in recent decades. But then on the on the infrastructure and planning side, I do think that we use migration is a bit of an excuse for the fact that we haven't built enough houses or that we haven't thought about the infrastructure. And the point that the review makes is that we use that permanent migration cap each year that's announced in the budget to kind of give a sense of where we're going on um, migration. But what it's saying is we actually need to take a much more sophisticated and long-term approach. So looking at what our migration numbers might be over a decade, even if that is going to change depending on you know changing economic circumstances or whatever the case may be, we actually take a longer term view 
which then allows state governments, business and others to plan for the level of population growth that we're going to have. And I think the community also having that level of transparency and trust in the system would also help uh, in terms of addressing these issues, because clearly our population is going to continue to grow. So we're we're best to plan for that uh, in the most sensible and you know long-sighted way that we can. And do you are you optimistic that government, business, unions, and broader society can come to a consensus about what Australia's migration system should look like and should strive towards? I, I think there is. I'm I'm quite optimistic on this. I mean, even if we look at the reaction to the government raising the temporary skilled migration income threshold, it, it seems that there's a there's a broad sort of unity ticket across business and and unions on this, um, which is which is really really good to see. Uh, but I think the experience of where we've ended up and and the mess that the system is in has made everyone realise that we've got to do things differently uh, and that we do need to have a joined up approach. We do need to be sensitive to some of the, the community concerns around migration and, and building on the fact that we see in so many of these community surveys that there is strong support across the community for the benefits of migration. And so I think if we're you know straight up with the community about the thinking on where migration is likely to head, changes in the system, the numbers going forward, I think that builds a real level of confidence and trust in the system. Jared Ball is the Chief Economist for CEDA, the Committee for Economic Development of Australia. Fewer armoured vehicles and more missiles. Changes are coming for the Australian Defence Force after a long-awaited defence review was released by the government this week. The 110-page report has been billed by the government as the biggest overhaul of Australian defence in 80 years, and it tries to identify what might be needed to prepare for potential conflict in the decades ahead. We confront the most challenging strategic circumstances since the Second World War, both in our region and indeed around the world. That's why we're investing in our capabilities and we're investing in our relationships to build a more secure Australia and a more stable and prosperous region. Adam Lockyer is Associate Professor in Strategic Studies at Macquarie University. He also served in the Australian Army. He says that after decades of fighting wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, this review is meant to set up the Defence Forces for the changing nature of warfare. And so what this review was attempting to do, and if it's implemented, what it will do, is give the ADF, the Australian Defence Force, a, a clearer mission in the immediate region. Now, what that means is we're moving away from those large land operations in Iraq and Afghanistan, and the Indo-Pacific region is dominated by the maritime space. And so we're also seeing a rebalancing back towards prioritising Navy and Air Force in particular to deal with those type of challenges faced by a rising China, but other regional challenges as well. I feel like whenever there's a reassessment of the Defence Force, there's something of a tussle between the various arms of the Defence Force, the Army, the Navy, the Air Force. It seems pretty clear from this review that the Army isn't winning that and, and there will be a lot more resources to the Navy. We know about the nuclear-powered submarines, of course, but also the focus 
on maritime missiles. What does that tell us? Is that all about geographic proximity or does it tell us something about the nature of a potential conflict that we might become involved in in the future? I think you're exactly right. And this is why this review went to external experts in order to be developed. Because the general pattern of military reviews or defence reviews within Australia is that's all done within the Department of Defence. And at that point there, the greatest enemy is not uh, China or other regional challenges. The biggest enemy are the other services, right? Because everyone's then fighting over their own <laughs> right, their, their own rice bowl. Um, and so Navy thinks is now like leering at Air Force and Army, saying you can't come after our rice bowl. And Army and Air Force are doing the same, and it becomes very competitive. And what happens is, generally speaking, there's a bit of a, a stalemate. They're sort of eyeing each other off and nothing really changes. And what the significance is to going to external experts to come in and write this report is to try and break that deadlock. So part of the motive of the reason why this review was structured like it was, was to pick winners and losers. And it hasn't, I wouldn't go as far as saying Army's been the loser, uh, but it's been given a very new mission. So what Army would like to do and the path that it had set for itself is to fight large land battles. That's what the Army would like to do. So what they would call combined arms warfare, which is sort of using tanks and artillery and using all those mixture of land capabilities to fight conflicts. And what this review is saying is, nope, put that aside. What your mission now is, is to fight in a maritime space and that means you've got to be lighter, so you don't need these heavy vehicles, and you're going to be using missiles rather than armour um, in order to fight your future battle. So we're going to get you out there in the Pacific and trying to make it more uh, difficult for challengers to use both the sea and the air around the islands, and Army's got a key role to play here. Of course, with any major review like this comes major spending in order to see it turned into reality. We didn't get a lot of detail on the financial front with this review. What do you think we need to see in this space? Does the government need to set out that spending or does it need to hold back so that it can still reassess as it goes forward, I guess, given how long in the distance this review plans? Yes, the review made some recommendations about things that are urgent and immediate, like the landing craft for Army. So if we're going to expect Army to become, you wouldn't quite call it like the US Marines, but far more of a maritime focus for Army, then they're going to need the capabilities to be able to move in that direction. Um, so we have to government now to assess, well, what are things we need tomorrow and what are things we need next year and things we can put out for, for a decade. But one of the significance of this review was to try to speed up the tempo of this procurement process. So traditionally in defence, when they're thinking about bringing on new capabilities, the timeline is years, if not decades, whereas this review has pushed everything forward saying we do need some of these new capabilities tomorrow. New capabilities means more money, which needs to be justified to Australian taxpayers if they're to accept expenditure in this realm at the expense of expenditure on other things that it could be spent on in the budget. In your view, has the government made the case to the public about why this level of expenditure is needed? Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is one of, personally, one of the weaknesses in the review. A lot of the conclusions and recommendations I, I personally agree with, um, but 
I think that the storytelling behind it is still a little bit thin. So the story being told, in this review at least, is that the United States is no longer the unipolar hegemon of the region. Um, it now has a credible peer competitor in, in, in China. Um, and so now the international structure is more towards a, uni, a multipolar type of competitive type of environment. And so therefore we need to shift out to state spending, right? Um, now that makes sense. But what then the review says is that, well, now we need to double down on the US alliance and help the United States to buttress its power and its security. And if, if it's able to still remain a powerful force in the region, then our security will be a byproduct of that. Um, but that story is a little bit weak because the public could equally just come to the conclusion that, well, if America is now the loser, then why are we siding with the loser? Like, if its power is in decline, why are we siding with a declining power? And that's an equally valid conclusion to come with. And I think the review could have made a better case. I think the narrative is a little bit weak. There's a difficulty for the government here, though, isn't there? Because if it wants to confront the realities of a potential conflict in the future, be it with China or, or elsewhere dealing with conflict in the Indo-Pacific region, it needs to make it clear that this is a real possibility. But in discussing that in a public way, it risks inflaming those very issues that we're trying to avoid. That, that's not an easy task for a government, is it? Yeah, and this is the balance you need to strike. Um, so some of the public commentary that's been out there in the media recently has been inflammatory, trying to get the public sort of whipped up into a bit of a frenzy that war is imminent. It's coming in three years. Um, nobody knows that. China's power is increasing. Its military is becoming more powerful. The United States and the Chinese military are now coming into more regular, closer contact in places like the South China Sea, and accidents could well happen right? Um, but that's not to say that war is imminent or inevitable. So we need to be able to sort of strike this right, right balance between, you know, there are serious security concerns out there that we need to take seriously and accidents do happen. But China is also an important partner for us in terms of not just trade, but also tackling things like climate change. Like we can't undertake these large global missions without China's involvement and cooperation. So that we need to just sort of disentangle that, yes, there are things we disagree with. Yes, there are potential security challenges, but we still need to engage with China and get cooperation on certain issues. Adam Lockyer, Associate Professor in Strategic Studies at Macquarie University. Conflict is a familiar backdrop to life in Sudan. There have been 35 coups or attempted coups since the country's independence in 1956. But now there are fears the North African nation is on the brink of civil war, with two powerful generals struggling to control the country. This week, diplomats from the US, UK and many parts of Europe were flown out of the country for their own safety as the UN raised concerns about the escalating conflict. The violence must stop. It risks a catastrophic conflagration within Sudan that could engulf the whole region 
and beyond. The Australian government is increasing consular assistance to the region to help Australians still in Sudan. I mean, this situation is dangerous and volatile and you can only imagine how um, scary it is to have family members in those situations. And I've spoken to many Australians who have partners, who have close family members, who have children in this situation. It's really scary. As the humanitarian situation deteriorates, tens of thousands of Sudanese locals have also been fleeing to neighbouring countries. Among them, 28-year-old architect Hadil Mohammed, who fled her home in Khartoum. When we spoke, Hadil had been travelling for days and had just arrived in Egypt's capital, Cairo. So it took us originally four days to start to decide to leave my mum's house and go over to my dad's house. It was getting a bit hectic around our area and it was completely taken over by the RSF forces. So we thought it's best to, to move a bit further away from where clashing could happen. We had no electricity by the second day, so it was obviously, it was a very difficult, the, the food was starting to get bad. Um, the, we already had water, so we thought ahead and tried to fill a lot of buckets with water, so we managed to do that. But we also thought it's best to move after a while. The fourth day we've left to Umdom, which is in the eastern part of Khartoum. And it's like the outskirts of Khartoum. That's where my dad resides in. And then we sat with him for two days discussing because he's got diabetes. So we thought about his insulin and we couldn't find insulin very easily. Um, so we thought about it and we discussed it and we were like, it's best to leave Sudan in general until everything calms down. Um, it was very hectic because the thought was, the faster we leave, the earlier we leave, the easier it could be for us before it actually becomes into a, a huge refugee crisis and we have to be put in tents or whatever. So it's usually the first people who leave can actually access the country. Can you tell me about leaving, uh, how you went about it and how others in, in a similar circumstance to you are going about it? Is it easy to coordinate to leave? What's it like at the border? So I'll tell you exactly what happened. The, the beginning of the fighting, a lot of Sudanese civilians started WhatsApp groups to coordinate safe passage routes, to, 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 whether it's to find medicine or find your relatives or get to your relatives. That's how it started. And then um, a lot of the, it was very organized. It's very organized. So what they've done is now started subgroups to, to help people go out of Khartoum. And that's what we used. Um, originally, everyone's getting on coaches to get out of Khartoum all the way to the borders of Egypt. But the coaches at the moment have been very unreliable, so they've left a lot of people hanging. Like, a coach would promise you something, and then he wouldn't arrive, or the prices would increase drastically. And because everyone has very limited money, because all of their monies are stuck in the bank at the moment. So we used, we were promised the coach to arrive, and it didn't arrive. Uh, my father worked at a school, so he had a school bus uh, available at home. He kept them there for safekeeping. And we used that to collect the rest of the relatives and we headed out to Khartoum. And then we carried on with the same bus, school bus, to journeyed on to uh, the borders of Egypt. And that's where we left the school bus and we had to cross on foot. But um, we were one of the people who had it the easiest, thank God, because we were using a private vehicle that was not going to cross the border. But I've got a lot of friends that arrived at the same time or has been there before in the um, in the borders for two days before we've arrived and they're still there. So a lot of people are really stuck in the borders right now because it's very slow paced. And I imagine there must be difficulties. Not everyone has 
not only the means to get to the border, but then to be able to cross the border as, as well, having the right paperwork and documentation, that must be an impediment for a lot of people getting to safety. A lot of people had to leave their homes without getting a chance to grab their passports. And a lot of people also, the passports were expired. So they were originally, it was originally in the system being renewed. Uh, and yeah, and new children that were born that they didn't have, they still didn't start the processes of passports for them as well. So a lot of people are stuck behind trying to figure out what to do and how to get proper documentation to allow them across the border. Hadil says she hopes the international community will step in to help people fleeing Khartoum so they're not stuck at Sudan's borders. For now, she and her family are in Cairo, unsure of what happens next. Again, I'm one of the lucky people because originally I do have family here in Egypt. Um, but when you think about it, am I, uh, we don't know. We decided to, we rented an apartment for two months trying to see how it's going to uh, play out in the, span, in the span of two months. But if it doesn't calm down, like, I guess we're going to have to start a new year. Although you're running out of food and, and medicine, I guess in some ways that makes it an easy decision to leave, but it can't have been easy to leave your home country. How are you feeling now that you're left and, and seeing what, what you have left behind? It's very heartbreaking. It's very surreal because what we had essentially packed is just... Uh, me and my sister shared a bag and me and my mo- and my brother and my mother shared a bag so, and my father came with one bag so everyone's got very limited and what you leave behind is just it's crazy because it's what you built for example for me for 28 years and my parents for longer and to leave it to, to for god knows how long and, and what you've left behind you don't know if it's actually going to be there when you come back with all the looting that's happening or um, worse that have been hit by missiles or whatnot. So it's it's very unknown. 28-year-old architect Hadil Mohammed. And that's the episode for this week. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe. This week is produced by Madeline Jenner, Stephanie Smale, Sam Dunn and me, Melissa Clark. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.